This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Adward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. On today's episode, we get to talk to Dr. Khan about what a day in the life of an ICU doc is. Keep an eye out for part two coming very soon. And make sure to check out her Instagram, at the female doc. Hi, I'm Dr. Khan. I am an ICU doctor. I'm also an osteopathic physician. I help pre-meds get into medical school despite having low scores. I also have 800 other jobs at the American College of Chest Physicians, and I love what I do. (laughs) That's great. I'm so happy to have you on. As we spoke before, a lot of things are changing with COVID, and so we're restarting up our A Day in the Life series to help people and help students figure out what they want to do since there are so many limitations right now. If you don't mind, um, can you tell us a little bit about what a normal day looks like for you as an ICU doc? Yeah, so when I'm in the ICU, I, I'm actually doing what's called locum tenens. So I'm an independent doctor, and um, recruiters will find me hospitals that really need me, uh, and then I get paid per shift. So when COVID hit, I found that California and New York were slammed. Um, I had my license in California, so I flew back and forth to several different hospitals within the state. And I pretty much almost worked like eight weeks straight. But the mornings, you know, the shifts, ICU shifts are typically 12 hours, so 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. is the usual. And you'll work seven days in a row, seven days off, seven days in a row, seven days off. But during the pandemic, I pretty much worked like almost every day. It was kind of actually insane. Uh, A little bit different. I was living out of a hotel instead of commuting from my home. Um, But in the morning, as soon as you get there, you jump on the computer, check the charts, and and I'll do a sweep of what's going on and get a big overview of what's going on with the patient by looking at their vital signs, overnight uh, events, um, any new labs for the morning. And then I just start my rounds and I'll just go through, start talking to the charge nurse first and then sweep through the ICU, find if there's someone really sick or needs something emergently and then start there and then kind of work my way backwards until the afternoon. Um, I've also been in academic practice and academic medicine is very different. So academic medicine, the attending shifts tend to be a lot shorter, so it's more like eight to five, and the trainees sort of cover from, you know, the 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or or however their schedule is, is created. And so the fellow would come in and kind of take charge of doing the overview, getting everything prepared to present to the attending, and then when I would come in at around eight or nine, and that's when we would start rounds and it would be a lot more formal. So we would go bedside to bedside with the fellow leading and telling me about what had happened with the patient. Here are the vital signs. Here's the labs. And they would even present their plan. Like, this is the, these are the next steps that I wanted to do. And then I would agree, disagree. We'd go examine the patient together, create a plan, and then 
complete those rounds basically by lunch. Are you working in a team more so in the academic realm, but then in the non-academic realm, it's more by yourself, it's just you and the patient? No, that's a great question, and the answer is actually no. So um, in both private and academic, teamwork is extremely, extremely valuable, and formalized team rounds, multidisciplinary rounds, are required by most hospitals. Um, So in my private practice now, um, when I go for rounds, it's, it's not just a charge nurse, but also respiratory therapy, nutrition, social work, case management, and we all kind of sweep through uh, all the patients. It's interesting because in academic medicine, sometimes the teams aren't actually able to stick around during rounds because when you're in a teaching environment, you have to take time to actually teach. And so rounds can typically take like up to three hours. Uh, so you're doing that from like nine to noon. And not all ancillary staff can stay on there. So the pharmacists can only, you know, they have to get back to doing things for the patient. Same thing with the respiratory therapist. So it's a little bit more piecemeal in academic medicine, whereas in private practice, because I'm the attending, I'm making final decisions. There's no back and forth. Um, everyone is done with their training. So they're in their job. Uh, rounds typically take like an hour. And so everyone has about an hour to spare. So a pharmacist can easily just stick with me during all of the rounds. And they've already done their pre-rounds, and they'll check, you know, antibiotic discontinuation, um, GI and DVT prophylaxis. It's actually very smooth. That is so interesting because I just started my third-year rotations, and let me tell you, one hour for rounds just sounds... (laughs) So different from what we do. We do about three-hour rounds on the inpatient service that I was just on. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually – honestly, that's one of the reasons why I left academic medicine. It was just so tedious um, after a while. I love to teach, but I also get pretty frustrated in the formalized, standard way of teaching, and I just felt like there were so many more efficient ways to – help the fellows, teach the fellows, and sort of use, like, technology, like video trainings and, and things like that where I wouldn't – it wouldn't have to be so repetitive for me because that actually causes a lot of burnout for attending physicians. Um, my fellows would – I would get a new fellow every two weeks. And because I was in the neurosurgical ICU, it's also even more subspecialized than just regular critical care. And so many of the fellows, the trainees, were coming in fresh, had not, had no background knowledge of neurocritical care, even if they were six months into their fellowship or towards the end of their first year fellowship because it's just not something that's really utilized in a majority of critical care fellowships. So every two weeks I was repeating the same things over and over again um, to reteach every single unit, and it just, it got to be really frustrating for me, and it it burns me out a lot as well. Um, I like, you know, one of my first jobs out of fellowship was nice because it was it was a private practice, but I was also semi academic. So I would train ER residents at Central Michigan University for about one week per month, and that really gave me a taste of a little bit of both. Um, 
And it created a nice balance because I would teach them for a week and then I would be a little bit burnt out and I would just want quiet time with just me and my patients and the rest (laughs) of my team members where things could maybe just flow a little bit more efficiently. I could get to lunch on time. I could really take time to talk to the families or really dig into their charts um, and figure out like weird medical mysteries and things like that. So um, I was lucky in that you know, I had always loved academic medicine. I had always loved teaching throughout training. But one thing a lot of med students, residents, and fellows don't understand is that there is this whole other efficient life balance with going into private practice where you still get a great team dynamic and you still can contribute to national-level teaching in a way that actually satisfies you. So that's why I'm super involved in the American College of Chest Physicians, and I teach at their national point-of-care ultrasound course, um, which obviously all the live learning courses are canceled this year. I'm on um, the Board of Trustees for the Chest Foundation, and we do a lot of grant reviews, give out research grants for um, lung disease and lung health, I'm involved in healthcare policy and lobbying, so I like to go down to D.C., which this year it was all virtual lobbying and kind of advocate in a national place. So it's interesting because I still feel like I'm in academic medicine. I I do research with the American College of Chess Physicians and still teaching, and I have my own online platform where I can teach, and it's just in a much more satisfying way for me, and I one of the most important things I want trainees and everyone kind of going through the motions right now is that you can define your life however you want. You can make a career however you want it to look like. So a lot of people get scared because they're just like, I can't do this forever. And I actually experienced that during my critical care fellowship. I was wildly burned out and I didn't want to be a critical care doctor anymore. And I honestly took that first job at a fellowship because I just had to pay off my loans. Like I had a lot of loans <laughs> and I I could not relax. Um, so I only took a month off and I went straight into it um, because I had to pay off wow. $10,000 on my credit card. And I needed that sign-on bonus to do that. And um, and then I just went to the grind, but I was so lucky because I had negotiated um, a contract where I was only doing day shifts. And you would be surprised how much night shifts, like, ruin your sense of well-being. Um, and, and I actually recovered, and I was like, oh, yeah, I love being a doctor. I can't imagine doing anything else. And And then after two years of that, I decided, you know what, let me try academic medicine full-time, like full-fledged. Because if I don't try it now, I'm never going to be able to, like, jump back into it. So I'm really glad I didn't. And what I discovered was that it just wasn't for me. But I tried it for a couple years, and it was nice because I was actually financially stable at that time because academic medicine pays significantly less, like wildly less than private practice to where you really have to love it. Yeah. It's it's. I think part of the burnout, too, that comes from sticking in academic medicine and going straight into it is that the, the, your finances are a mess, right? You have $300,000 in student loans, 
And I racked up 10 grand in credit card debt during fellowship because they just, you don't, you just don't make enough. Um, and so when I was in academic medicine, I actually had a nice cushion. You know, I, I was still paying off my loans, but I had really saved a lot of money for my private practice and like slammed down a bunch of money onto my loans. And so I felt more financially secure. And and I had a little bit more freedom. Like some of my colleagues in academic medicine were picking up all kinds of extra night shifts just to make a little bit of extra money because they were financially strapped because you just don't make that much in academic medicine. So I don't know. My journey has been kind of weird. And, and now that I'm an independent doctor, I just decide when I actually want to work. Um, obviously, with COVID, I knew I was needed, so I worked like eight weeks straight. But then after that, I took a full four weeks off where I didn't see any patients because I knew what happened to me when I burned out, and I knew what I needed for self-care to be able to go back and give again from a full cup. That is such a talent <laughs> to realize when you're burnt out. I feel like a lot of physicians struggle with this, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about academic versus non-academic. I feel like we very much, at least as medical students, are taught to box things in in order to have a diagnosis. You know, this has to fit this box. Um, and if we're thinking about a field that we, we're going into, it has to fit this box of either academic or non-academic, if that's what we want to do. So it's interesting to hear that you were able to mesh. I want to go a little bit back to you said that you realized you really loved this field when you were, you know, doing that one job. Um, what attracted you to this field to begin with? What is it about this kind of practice that you're like, I have to do this for the rest of my life? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, so I'm a little bit weird. <laughs> I'm a little bit weird <laughs> in that I think I have a very special relationship with death. And it sounds so morbid and so creepy, but I find <laughs> such great fulfillment in not just obviously saving lives is amazing, but I find such great fulfillment and joy in helping those who I can't save pass away peacefully with dignity and with their loved ones and with questions answered for the family members so that it's not – obviously, it's always going to be a, a very painful experience for everyone when a loved one leaves us. But I, I find such great joy in that I'm able to ease them through that process as best as I can. And it was weird. I, I Suddenly, when I started college – and I always knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid. And when I started college, for some reason, the mortality of my parents, like, really sunk in. And I started living my life a little bit differently in in a way where I was very present and I was cherishing every moment. And I would really tell my friends, like, dude, I love you. I'm here for you. I would tell my parents, I love you all the time. And it's nice because 20 years later, I've had 20 full solid years of being able to live a li live my life knowing that, you know, it could end any time or someone can be taken away at any time. And I think that's 
a very different way of living. And because of that, I've always been attracted to critical care. I mean, I love the fast-paced nature of it. So I started as a third-year med student, and I was like, this is it. This is the, this is amazing. I love this. Um, my my critical care rotation was incredible. Um, I had the best mentor, Dr. Robinson, and he is one of those old-school doctors that just, has such grace in how he practices medicine and he approached it with such integrity. Like I think everyone knows that one attending that's kind of like, Oh, I definitely don't want to be like them as fast as it is to say, you know, (laughs) I don't want to talk poorly about my colleagues, but, and then when you meet someone like Dr. Robinson, where there's just such poise and, such grace and ease and just it's just one of those he's one of those people that you just admire from the beginning and you're like wow he really gets it he really gets what it is to be a physician he really takes such pride in what he does and he's really there for the patients you know and so when I saw that I was like this is what I want to do um and then, of course, like everyone else, I think it's totally normal. You yo-yo a lot. So when I became an intern and I did my ICU rotation, I was like, absolutely not. I'm not doing this. This is horrific work. Like, I'm so burnt out. And then um, and then my senior year of residency, I was just like, I don't know. Do I want to do it? Do I not? It's just another three years. I really want to start a job, retire my parents. Um, And there was this one night, I'll never forget. I was on call at night, and that one attending that that, that everyone knows where it's like, ooh, I don't know. Um, He was being assigned to cover the ICU. And I remember I was so upset about it because there were a lot of patients I cared about at that time in the ICU for the weekend. And that's when I was like, I can't just stop now. I have to keep going. I have to apply to fellowship. So I apply, I kind of scrambled and then I applied um, my third year. And back when I applied, um, you had to actually apply your second year of residency in order to not take a gap year because you were accepted for like the following year. So I'm glad they've changed that now. So you can, you apply during your third year and then they take you because otherwise you're making the decision way too early in your residency. But anyway, so I applied, um, I got in and I started and it was amazing at first. And then again, I got burnt out and I was like, what did I do? I need to go into infectious disease or something else. But then, you know, you just have this, love-hate relationship with the profession for a while, and it's only because you're burnt out and you're sleep-deprived. Like, if you go back to the core of why you started and why you went through years and years and years of training, you know it's there. You just have to rediscover it. And honestly, our system doesn't make it easy. So it's like I had to do a lot of digging myself, and that's why I really like to share my story. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast, but I also like to – put it on my Instagram and I blog about it just so people know that they're not alone. Cause I know everyone else feels like me. And you know, there's times and there were times in med school that I was just like, 
I'm not going to residency. I'm going to go get my MBA. And I looked into taking the GMAT. And, you know, it's just you change your mind 8,000 times, but no one talks about it. They just make it seem like, oh, yeah, now I'm I'm an amazing private practice attending, making a ton of money, and life is good. But it's not like that. It's just up and down every day, and you're changing your mind 800 times. And you have no idea where your life is going, and that's okay, honestly. It's kind of, I mean, it's part of the journey. I don't know if I fully answered that, but I kind of went on a tangent. No, you are. You are. That's so refreshing to hear because I definitely feel that day in and day out. I'm like, I, you know, first two years I was in the classroom. I was like, wow, I really made the wrong choice, but I am X amount in like the hole in debt. I got to finish these four years. Who knows what I'm going to do after First day of my third year rotations, I was like, wow, like, this is amazing. I guess it was worth it. And I just, every time I talk to residents currently, because I'm at a facility that has residents as well, they're like, oh, that's that waxing and waning. It's going to happen all throughout. So it, it it is nice to have those small conversations with people and know that I'm not going crazy for feeling this way, especially when there are people that are like, oh, I, I know that I want to do X, Y, Z. Uh, profession and that's the profession for me and I'm over here like I don't know (laughs) so what what kind of advice do you have for those that are seeking to become intensive care or critical care doctors um, in terms of how do you get down this path and um, what are some things that they should look out for when they're pre-meds or medical students yeah I think what's amazing about critical care is there are so many avenues to get to critical care You can be an intensivist as an ER doctor, internal medicine, neurology, anesthesiology, surgery, um, neurosurgery. So it's, it's like there's an endless cardiology. There's just an endless route to it. So if it's something that you're really passionate about, I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself and, and saying like, oh, well, I have to get into this residency so I can be an ICU doctor or, you know, it's just because I ended up, I primarily practice neurocritical care. I mean, with COVID right now, I'm mostly just working COVID ICUs, but I primarily practice neurocritical care and I'm not a neurologist. I just really love neurocritical care. And... um People who do love neurocritical care, like they might have thought, oh, you know, I missed my chance. I should have become a neurologist. But, you know, once you're, once you become a a full-fledged physician, the fellowship world is very loosey-goosey. You know, I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. ENT surgeons, like with a lot of their subspecialties, aren't even ACGME fellowships. It's just like random pediatric, you know, this or that. And same thing with GI. You you stop needing the ACGME organization to kind of formalize your education, and it really becomes kind of like an apprenticeship, which is really fun. Um, so, yeah, if, if you're interested in critical care, I mean, first decide if you like the fast-paced nature of it. So a lot of people kind of – flip-flop between ER and ICU. And I and they're very different in that ER, you are taking care of a wide variety of diseases, disease states. So some patients will come to you with a cough, walking, talking, totally fine. 
and then you send them home. Some patients are pediatric. And then, of course, sometimes you get the initial trauma, and that's, you know, the septic shock and all that stuff, and that's where the excitement lies. But then you hand them off to the intensivist. So if you're not – if you're someone who hates rounding and seeing the same patient every day, then maybe ER is a better choice. But if you like the excitement and the consistency and you want to see that patient through, then maybe think more about ICU. Like, I I cannot take care of pediatric children. It's just a different emotional level for me that I just can't dive into. So I always knew I couldn't do pediatric medicine. I always had to do adult medicine. And ER was too much of a mixed bag for me. I, I, I really didn't like seeing some of the boring, cough, cold, urgent care kind of visits mixed in with the exciting traumas. I just wanted the excitement and I wanted the consistency. So that's kind of how I ruled ER out. And out of all of those subspecialties that kind of funnel into critical care, internal medicine was the most interesting to me. And I liked internal medicine because I thought, well, if I don't 100% decide on ICU, then I can at least do cardiology or nephrology or infectious disease. There's a whole bunch of other subspecialties. So it was just, I kind of went like, I guess, the safer route. Um, but I, I thought about literally every single one of those at some point. And I probably would have just ended up doing the same thing I am now, which is nice to know. Like, the decisions I think we place on med students to, to, to figure things out as soon as possible is, is a lot. It's just too much because then I think in medicine, when you make a, a final decision of like what you want to do, kind of like how you mentioned, people just feel so boxed in and they feel trapped if they decide they want to change their mind. And it's, it's, I, I don't think it's a good way of approaching medicine because when, once you're in as a physician, you can make your career as fluid as possible. You can do, you can create it however you want. There's so many opportunities within medicine that we just don't talk about because a lot of the academic attendings are there because they like academics or they're there because they've just been there forever or they like the research aspect of it. And there's a lot of people who don't like the research part of it or don't like this, but they can't envision creating what they want. Um, outside of academic medicine. They just think like, oh, in private practice, I'm, you know, I'm dedicated to ICU and clinic and, and doing this. But it's like I've, you know, I've approached hospitals and they've made jobs for me, right? Like I um for the editorial board of the American College of Chess Physicians, the Chess Journal, they made a position for me because I wanted to – create visual abstracts. And there was a whole application process. They were looking for um, a main editor. And I was going up against my my sponsor, Dr. Chris Carroll. And, I mean, he, he has a master's in statistics. And he, he's been doing research forever. <laughs> and so I was like, he's going to get this position, but I applied anyways. And then they decided that they were going to open up more assistant editor positions to work under him. And so... I got the position and it was, it was just, it was one of those magical moments where I was like, wow, you know, you really can create a career however you want. 
in medicine. So what I'm hearing is we got to get rid of these boxes in our heads. <laughs> there's, <laughs> <Yeah>. a, <laughs> there's a lot of room for being able to divest into certain interests. Um, yeah. And this kind of leads into my next question. Um, on social media, you know, you've talked extensively about pre-meds and medical students and even residents being told that they can't accomplish a goal. You yourself saying that this has happened to you because of your scores, because of the type of degree that they've received and whatever, um, without giving too much away from your mentorship program, which I do want to come back to because it sounds really amazing. Um, what do you recommend for these groups when they're feeling down on themselves, when they're feeling bad about their scores or these things that people have told them that they can't get past? I think the the main thing to remember is that people, most people will project their own insecurities onto you. So when they tell you that you can't do it because you have low scores, what they're really saying is, I can't do it. If I was in your shoes, I wouldn't be able to do that. And therefore, I can't see you doing it. Right? It's a reflection of their limited mindset. Whereas, if if you look for possibilities, like... Nowadays, so many pre-meds get a master's degree or do a post-bath and they bring up their scores because they've realized that there is a, there's still a possibility. Like, in my age group, there's so many people I talk to that actually tell me, like, wow, if I had a mentorship program, if I came across your mentorship program, maybe I would have stuck it out. Or, wow, if I would have realized that you know, I could have corrected my mistakes from undergrad with a master's degree in science, in some sort of science, and maybe I would have kept going and I would be a doctor today. Um, and, and there's just so many ways to correct your mistakes. Like, and, and it's not just in medicine. I think our society as a whole, the American society, is just unforgiving of mistakes. And I think a lot of that is a reflection mm-hmm. of just our school system. Like one of my one of my favorite quotes is by Mark Twain, and he says, um, "Don't let schooling get in the way of your education." It's so good because we learn so much outside of formalized education, and that's exactly what formalized education is. is it's just formalized, and that's not. It doesn't define your career. It doesn't define who you are as a person. Like when I started as a freshman at USC. I was so excited because I was I was a fresh pre-med. I graduated high school with a 4.2. I did all the AP classes. I basically got straight A's. I was that superstar student, and I just couldn't get it together for college. Like, I, I didn't know how to study because everything always came naturally to me. I was a procrastinator, and I would still get 100% on all the tests. And then college came, comes around, and you have these professors that aren't dedicated to teaching you the way that you know, high school teachers teach you. And I just couldn't learn the material. I needed that that personal interaction. And my freshman year, I, I finished with a 2.5 GPA. I had four Bs and four Cs my freshman year. And at that point, that's it was certainly like, something, I was going to say, that's certainly something that I feel like a lot of people experience. And then their pre-med counselors are like, you should probably give up pre-med. It's not going to happen yeah, for you. Right. That's exactly what it was. And everyone was like, that's it, man. 
And I hate that. I hate how unforgiving it is because what I ended up doing was I, I mean, I did, I still continued to fumble through my sciences. I just hated those science classes. And so the good news is if you're listening to this and you're a pre-med and you hate those dry science classes, med school is nothing like that. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, like my pre-med advisor said, take a different career. And, and, and I think this kind of goes back to that weirdness of me where I've just always understood death and, re- and, and, and because I understood death, I understood regret. And I just never wanted to look back and regret it. So I always try everything that I want to try. And if I make a mistake, perfect. At least it's my mistake. And if if someone tries to make fun of me about my mistake, it's like I it, I was the one who was brave enough to get on that on that bandwagon and like go for it. Um, they weren't. So if you've ever watched Brene Brown's um, Netflix special. It is incredible because she she's a psychologist and she does a lot of research around guilt and shame and vulnerability. And she talks a lot about that, that most people are really just projecting their own insecurities and their limitations on you. And so don't take that to heart. And there's, there's too much of a comparison culture too, especially with social media. Like I have seen that dramatically increase over the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. From when I was in, when I was in college, that's when Facebook first became a thing, and you had to sign up to Facebook with a .edu email address because it was just for college kids. <laughs> yeah, it was really it's, it's like obviously completely blown up, and then Instagram came, and then Twitter, and then Snapchat, and now TikTok, and it's like the comparison culture is outrageous. Um, so take your social media breaks and. I mean, just focusing on your own journey and what you want to accomplish with that. So is this a lot of the same stuff that you tell us, that you tell students about when they do their, the mentorship program with you? Can we talk a little bit about that and what it's like? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I actually, I have a free masterclass, um, that anyone can register for. And sorry to do this to you, but that's the end of part one. Stay tuned to hear more about her masterclass, how to advocate for yourself, and more on part two. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.